Thank you, Rob. It is a joy being here with you guys. And I love this church. You are maybe my second favorite church. Obviously, my, my church is my favorite church, but I love you guys. Pray for you regularly. We live in Bellwood, like right there. Like your first time here, we just, me and two of my sons just rode our bikes over to be with you guys. So it was a blessing. So I ride by here every day, multiple times, see your sign, pray for you guys. Join in your Thursday morning prayers often uh, just over here with guys who are here praying early in the morning. So it's just a joy um, praying for Carson, praying for the Stewart family. Um, just grateful for you guys. So um, it is a joy to address you from God's Word tonight. And you can open it up to Matthew chapter 12 if you haven't already. Um, in his book, uh, 24-6, by medical doctor Matthew Sleeth, he tells about a class in medical school where they're trying to learn how to read x-rays. I never really thought about that. Like, they actually have to learn that. Like, the, these guys don't just have these powers to put it up to the light and read x-rays. They actually have to learn that. So he's, he's sitting in class, and the doctor puts this x-ray up, and several students are looking at the 16-year-old girl's x-ray who had chest pain and asking question after question about what was wrong with this 16-year-old girl. And after about 30 minutes, all the students were wrong. And so they said, well, it's normal, which apparently is one of the hardest x-rays to read, is one that's just normal. And so the instructor let that linger for a little while and then turned back to the x-ray. And the professor explained to these up-and-coming medical doctors that it's not always what you see in the x-ray that is important, it's also what you don't see. You've got to look, is there anything missing? And he said, where is her left clavicle? It was missing. The 16-year-old girl, the pain she had was from cancer. Friends, if we look at the x-ray of our lives, many of us might be like, well, it's, it's normal. It looks pretty normal. It looks like everybody else around me. But if we look a little closer, something might be missing, and what is missing may be killing us, and what is missing may be rest. Rest in the Lord. Unhurried time with King Jesus sitting at his feet, rejuvenating, being refreshed in him, slowing down, and trusting God. Your pastors asked me to speak on rest today. So we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 12. We're going to go a little before that in Matthew 11 because it talks a lot about rest. And, but this isn't going to be a verse-by-verse -verse study through Matthew chapter 12. We're going to gain some biblical foundations for rest before we even can even talk through everything about chapter 12. We're going to look at some enemies of rest, and we're going to look at some application of where do we go with this. So look at Matthew chapter 11 with me, starting at verse 28. You guys talked about this last week, but this is a significant passage. When Jesus says this, and just imagine him making eye contact with you as you hear these words, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Verse 29 of chapter 11. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Chapter 12, verse 1 of Matthew. 
At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck the heads of grain to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Verse verse 8 here is significant. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? so that they might accuse him. And he said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out. It was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of his word. Point number one tonight is a biblical foundation of rest. Before we understand Matthew 12, we've got to understand Genesis 1 and 2 and what it speaks of about rest. In Genesis 1, God speaks powerful words, creates the world in six days. And then Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3 say this, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of, of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. God rested. And we've got to ask, why did God rest? Was God tired from the six days of speaking creation? No. So why did God rest? Well, God rested because something in his character is being spoken to us about the regular rhythm that mankind must live in in honoring God as image bearers. There's a cadence of six and one and six and one and six and one and six and one. And that's the cadence of creation. And that's the cadence you see throughout the Old Testament into the New Testament. In Exodus chapter 19, the people are heading and on Mount Sinai, or toward Mount Sinai, and God is coming to them. They've they've gotten out of slavery from the Egyptians. God and man coming together. This is a wonderful moment. God says, you're going to be a kingdom of priests. You know what priests do at this time? They mediate. They're going to be the ones to show the nations who Yahweh is. This is going to be really good. But what do God's people do? They kind of step back. And they're like, we're not so interested in being priests. 
We're not so interested in a continual relationship and continual rest like Adam and Eve had before sin came into the world. We're not really interested in that, God. We really like your blessings, but we're not so interested in a relationship. And so a chapter later, God goes to Moses while the people are at a distance, and he gives them the Ten Commandments of what is a relationship with God going to look like there's vertical relationship and there's then horizontal relationship. The first four commandments and the, the next six that are horizontal. And the fourth commandment, the vertical commandment, Exodus 20, verse 8, the longest of the commandments says this, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughters or your male servants or your female servants, your livestock or the sojourners who are within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the seas and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. God ties all this in Exodus 20 back to Genesis 2. A regular rhythm of rest for God's people. And then we see this rest idea as manna is, is part of the picture. Does anybody know, and you guys who are here earlier, you can't yell it out, does anybody know what manna means? You, you raised your hand. Such a good student. If I had something like a sticker, I would give it to you. What, uh, what does manna mean? It is the bread. Do you know what it means, though? Yeah, yeah. What is it? That's what it means. So like they saw this bread from the sky and they're like, what is it? Yeah, that's a great name. What is it? That's what manna actually means. It's kind of like Panera bread. Do you know what Panera bread means? Bread bread. That's the, you want to go to bread bread? Well, that's Panera bread. So if you're a Spanish speaker, pan is bread. You know that. So Panera bread is bread bread. And so um, they have the manna, and what's interesting is how God uses manna and kind of Sabbath in some similar ways, where he says, hey, I'm going to give you food. I'm going to give you manna six days a week. You're in the desert. You need food. You need provision. God provides for his people in the desert. So six days a week, they go out and they get the manna. On the seventh day, the Sabbath, they are not going to have any. What do we see over and over and over? They go out on the seventh day. They're like, where is the what is it? right? And it's not there. Why? Because God said it's not going to be there. But they also like kept messing up and they kept hoarding extra bread because they didn't believe on Tuesday that it would actually be there on Wednesday. And, they, and God says, hey, it's going to be nasty. It's going to be full of worms. It's going to smell bad. Don't hoard more than you need. But they keep hoarding more than they need. So the next day it stinks. It's nasty. The whole idea of manna is about trusting God. The whole idea of Sabbath and rest is about trusting God. How you rest and how you trust God are linked together. I guarantee it. How we rest and how we trust God are linked together. So in, as we fast forward through the Old Testament where there's lots of Sabbath keeping and Sabbath breaking, you head to Matthew chapter 12, our passage that I read a little while ago, and Jesus then says, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. There's some significant stuff going on. The Pharisees have put so much buffer 
like trying to pad the Sabbath and said, we're not going to even get close to breaking the Sabbath. We're going to make rules upon rules upon rules so you don't break Sabbath. Jesus comes and says, no, no, no. Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Like this is a gift to you. You're, you're making this like this legalistic practice, but the whole time God says, rest. How odd is it that God has to tell you to rest? Isn't that weird? Like, I love a nap. But it's, it's weird that God has to tell us, slow down. There's a rhythm and you can rest. And what we find in Matthew chapter 12, part of the resting if God's people is doing good for others, right? Can you heal people on the Sabbath? Can you pull your sheep out of the hole on the Sabbath? I don't have any sheep, but would I pull my kid out of a hole? Sure, (laughs) right? All nine of them. And so what are we going to do on the Sabbath? What is restful? It's, It's loving God and loving others, which is what the Ten Commandments say. We love God and we love others. What's the greatest commandment? Love God, love others. And God says this day of rest and rejuvenation is a gift to you. It's not a legalistic practice. It's a gift, which makes a lot of sense. If God wants us to be a renewed people, a restored people that honor Him. Now you fast forward to Hebrews chapter 3. We're not going to read it, but the author of Hebrews explains three logical connections of rest and kind of weaves them together in Christ, which is massively important. I would hang my hat on Sabbath on Hebrews chapter 3. He ties together God's resting in creation, the fourth commandment of the Sabbath, and the rest that the people of Israel get when they enter the promised land. So you read Joshua, our church, we're going through Joshua, we're almost done with Joshua right now, and it's all about the rest. God gave them rest from their enemies, they're in the promised land. And the author of Hebrews ties all this together and says, guess what, believers? You have rest in Christ. You live in a perpetual rest, not just one day a week, but you live in a rest. We have a rest from doing works to get good standing with God. We have rested from disobedience. We have rested in Christ. He is our great high priest. We have one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. We don't have to go through the sacrificial system every year. We've got the one perfect atoning sacrifice in Jesus. Rested. And we functionally, experientially rest and have peace in Christ, if we're believers, that we didn't have prior. I remember the exhaustion. I became a believer at 18 years old. I remember the exhaustion of trying to manage the lies to my parents through my teenage years. Like, what did I tell them? Who did I tell them I was going to be with? And choo-choo-choo-choo-choo, and then getting busted, like, oh, right? It was exhausting. It was not restful. I remember the exhaustion. I was a baseball player all the way through, played in college, and the exhaustion of worshiping baseball, because there's always more. There's always more. You're only as good as your last hit. You're only as good as your last pitch. It's how did you do for me? What did you do for me lately? The coach loved you this day. He's cussed you out the next day, and you're like, oh my gosh, this is exhausting, 
But friends, if you're in Christ, there is a rest. You're not on the hamster wheel. Christ died for the hamster wheel so you could get off it and you could live in him in a restful state. Now, I'm not what people would call a Sabbatarian where like you can't mow your lawn on Sundays or something like that, but I am a fan of a regular rhythm of rest because we are in Christ. And many Christians just ignore the idea of resting. If we are sprinting seven days a week, how is that possibly in any kind of rhythm that we were created for? By the Lord. He seems to have some rhythm that we need to live in and walk in. And I don't know too many American Christians that couldn't use some rest. Couldn't use really deep, slow thoughts about rest. And friends, if Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath, if the creation order has the Sabbath, if Christ, who we are in, continually gives us a Sabbath rest, why would we not want to take part in regular weekly resting, not for favor, but from favor. We are in the favor of God, and so we can be restful people. Why would we not, who have freedom in Christ, not see the free gift of stopping? Some people call a Sabbath day stop day. We're just going to stop, and I just want to say off the record, and don't send this to my church, meeting on Saturday nights is fantastic. (laughs) Like, you have tomorrow where you could actually, like, no, some of you guys have to work, but there's a lot of you guys that don't. That you have an opportunity to be like, hey, Saturday night to Sunday night, we're just going to take this time to just dedicate it to the Lord. Our phone is going to take a Sabbath. Our computer is going to take a Sabbath. Our whatever. And we're just going to be restored in this way as a family, as a single, toward my friends, toward my church family, have some hospitality, go to the beach. We met on Saturday nights for our first year almost every Sunday morning. I'm like, we're going to the beach. We're going to the beach. We're going to the beach. And we're going to be in the neighborhood sometimes because lost people are in the neighborhood. They're not at church Sunday morning. Hey, let's come over. It's a wonderful time to share the gospel with people. Psalm 46.10 is an often loved verse. Be still and know that I am God. We think about rest. Be still and know that I am God. But I want to use that in a little different way because I think in the context, that's not actually how you read it. I think it's more like, Be still! No, I'm God. I think it's kind of Jesus speaking to the wind and waves. Kind of be still. Some of us, we need the little firm, like we're just going, 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 and God's in our face, and he's like, be still. Stop already. You're spinning your wheels, and you have no tread on the tires. Rest in me. I provide you rest. Some of us need that. When we read Psalm 46, 10, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. 
That's Jesus talking. I will give you rest. And we're like, man, I'm so tired. I'm so burned down. I'm so exhausted. Just the, the, this thing. There's the soccer practice, and there's this deadline, and there's this schoolwork, and there's this project, and there's this HOA meeting. And there's a, it's just like, oh my gosh. And God's like, that's not the rhythm. There's some adjustments, some course corrections. What do we need to do to be still and know that he is God? Because you see the restful rhythm of Jesus that is completely different than any way any of us would have made the script. Like you don't even really hear about him besides Jesus' birth till he's 12. He's in the temple listening to the Lord, which is awesome. His parents like get freaked out, but he's like in the temple listening to God. He doesn't even start his ministry till age 30 which none of us would have written the script if we were like, here's how we're going to save the world. The guy who's going to be the Savior first 30 years, not really on the scene. Just three. Three years. We'll just do it in three. We wouldn't write the script that way, would we? 30 years. He's doing carpentry or cutting his toenails. I don't know what Jesus did during those 30 years, but there's, there's 30 years where he's learning obedience, which Jesus did. Even though he's perfectly God, he's also fully man, and he grew in favor with God and man, the scriptures say. We wouldn't have done it that way. And then when he starts his ministry, how many times does he pull off the side of the road, basically, and start praying, and his disciples don't even know where he is? He's out praying, praying to the Father again. Dang it, what are you doing? Like, we got ministry to do. Peter goes to him at one point. Like, he's getting famous in the city after he heals all these people. And he's like, Let's, there's more people here. And Jesus is like, we're going to the next city. He's like, but there's all these people here. And Jesus is like, let's go. I'm going to speak the kingdom of God to the next city. We wouldn't have done it that way. We do not live in the rhythm of Jesus. We just, we don't. He spends lots of times with unimportant people, ungodly people, super religious people that like vote differently than you and you don't even like being around them. He spends unhurried time with hurting people. He pours most of his time into three guys. All right, here's how we're going to seek and save the lost. For the entire earth. All right, Peter, James, John, we got fishermen. I'm going to pour into them for about three years. I think that'll work. Then we'll have nine more, so we'll have 12, and one's going to betray me, so he's going to be dead. So we got kind of 11. I think that'll work. I wouldn't have done it that way. Come at the internet age, let's get a TikTok video of Lazarus raising up, we're good. But no, that's not what. Jesus does. And let's just note, friends, the pace of Jesus. He does not adopt our modern mantra of doing everything big and fast and famous. He moves slowly, purposefully, quietly, and sows into just a few. What would change if we adopted Jesus' pace? Like, what would change in your life 
if you adopted Jesus' pace of life. And just two other quick notes on the rhythm of Jesus. He did not seem to get irritated when plans changed. So I'm going to Jairus' house. This woman touches his robe, and he's healing her, and it seems to be like he gets diverted. All right, I'm going to spend time here now. Like, I don't love that. I'm like, the traffic's so slow! If you live anywhere around here, you're like trying to turn on Miles Jamison Road onto Ladson Road at like 7 anything in the morning, and you're like, oh, there's people everywhere. And he's also okay with being misunderstood. Jesus is fine. He's misunderstood by Peter. He doesn't really correct Peter. He's like, this is what we're doing. You know, when Lazarus dies... Everybody's like, let's go. He's like, I'm going to wait several days. He's waiting for the, the body to decay, basically. And everybody knows that on this, like, there's no possible way this guy's getting back up. He's shown his power. He has a different pace than we do. He's walking by the Spirit. But before we jump into application about rest, we've got to understand some of the enemies of rest. Friends, you have enemies of rest. One of the predominant enemies of rest is, is what it says in the text in Matthew chapter 12, forgetting that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. Forgetting that Jesus is the Lord of rest. In our American production-driven society, we think life is more about what we accomplish than what Christ already accomplished. We don't rest because we either freak out at the idea of rest, because then we actually have to think about how miserable our lives are, or we don't actually believe we need rest. We just need more coffee, right? We need more stimulants, no offense on the coastal coffee guy. But we, we just drug ourselves to death thinking, well, this will make up for it, instead of actually being rejuvenated in Christ Jesus. All right, next enemy of rest is discontentment and unbelief. In Psalm 131, verses 1 and 2, get this. I'm going to read you what it says in the text. Then I want to read you um, a version that a guy named Eugene Peterson wrote. Uh, and what he says, which is an interesting way to put it. He says, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. This is what David says. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great or too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his, its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Here's how Eugene Peterson paraphrases this. He says, God, I'm not trying to rule the roost. I don't want to be king of the mountain. I haven't meddled where I have no business or fantasized grandiose plans. I've kept my feet on the ground. I've cultivated a quiet heart like a baby content in its mother's arms. My soul is a baby content. Now, moms, you have no problem understanding this picture. You know what a baby discontent in your arms looks like. I want food, and I want it now. Angry, arched back, red-faced, screaming, I 
want food. They can't even talk, but they're talking, right? But we also know what a content baby is, a fed baby, a happy, cooing, content-in-the-lap baby. Which one of those pictures would describe your life? If I were to ask your roommate or your spouse or your parents or your kids, would they say you're discontent or content? Are we like a weaned child quietly resting in mom's lap? Or are we, are we quietly resting in God, waiting on God, patient, dependent, just grateful to be near God and in relationship with Him? Or not? Charles Spurgeon says this of Psalm 131. I love this quote. He says, It is one of the shortest psalms to read, but one of the longest to learn. Psalm 131, one of the shortest. It's one of the shortest psalms in the Bible. But it's one of the longest. To learn contentment takes a lifetime. Friends, discontentment is an enemy of rest. In Luke chapter 10, there are two sisters, Mary and Martha. Mary sits at Jesus' feet, and Jesus says she chose the good portion. Martha's ticked. She's angry. She feels like Mary has not been helping out. And the text says she's busy with much serving, which is another enemy of rest, distracted with much serving. And friends, we can live in this. We can be doing lots of good stuff and not resting in Christ. Jesus tells Martha that in her serving, she's distracted. He tells Martha that in her serving, she's anxious and troubled. Jesus says that Martha has neglected the one thing that is necessary. She's fixing dinner. It's an awkward moment. Just put yourself in that moment. You're the disciples, okay? And Martha's complaining to Jesus. And you're like, this is a little weird. Okay. Like, should we go to a different house now? Because she's angry. She's sitting at the feet. And I don't know what I'm supposed to do right now, you know? And you're like, there's some weird moments in the Bible if you just kind of put yourself in that situation. Mary's doing the one thing necessary. And Martha says, do you care? Jesus, do you care? The very reason Jesus is in the house is because he cares. That's his motive. The reason Jesus came to earth for Martha is because he cares, and Martha is sticking her finger in his face saying, don't you care? Oh man, how often do I do this? God, do you care? Do you see me? Do you care about what's going on in my life? Being distracted with much serving. Friends, we must slow down. Those of us especially who are Marthas that are prone to just take the next thing, take the next thing, take the next thing, just go, go, go. I'm going to do all the work of the Lord. And we end up doing the work of the Lord in the power of the flesh. We do the work of the Spirit in the power of the flesh. Friends, we must do the work of the Spirit and the power of the Spirit. And the last enemy of rest is efficiency and productivity. 
efficiency, productivity. One of the things I've been really learning over the last probably two months of my life is, man, this has been an enemy of rest for me. I heard an illustration of a guy, he said, in pastoral ministry, and I think you can apply this to lots of areas of life, um, there are certain things you're really good at, and there are certain things you're really bad at, right? So the illustration he used was um, golfing. Any golfers in here? I used to golf a long time ago. It's too much time and money now, but, um, but in high school I played. And so for me, when I played golf in high school, I knew my seven iron was going to be my good club. So if I needed to hit a strong seven iron or a weak seven iron, I would do that as opposed to an eight iron or a six iron. I would pull out the seven iron. My seven iron was my club. It was my favorite. And almost every golfer I've ever talked to, they have favorite clubs that they're going to pull instead of other clubs. When pastoral ministry and anything in life, we have go-to things we go to. You know, my, my seven iron in ministry is efficiency. I get things done. I network, I call people, I write sermons, I help churches get planted, I do all this stuff, I network for you guys. Whoop, 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 whoop. Cool. Love it. Here's a package, Rob. I love doing that. But here's the problem. Efficiency is the wrong club when it comes to relationships. You talk about a broken relationship and trying to fix it efficiently, you know what that does to the relationship? <laughs> exactly. And I've done that. And I'm realizing that. I've done that over and over and over. And I've been on, I was telling Rob this, I've been on repair work for some different people in my church. Not that people are new. People have been there a while. And like, I, I actually, I, I pushed you away because it wasn't an efficient thing to work on a relationship. Friends, it's, it's more than just rest. If, if this is our go-to, man, we might be breaking relationships with people because we don't take the time to work on them. And you know what? When I've been hurt by somebody, like, I'm like, ooh, what you said was critical or whatever. If I'm just like, I'm going to overlook that in love, we'll move on. We'll move on with ministry. You know what that does? You don't actually move on. You actually just don't deal with it. And if you're like me and you're an efficiency machine, there are, it's the wrong club. It's, there are some consequences. And I'm reaping some of those consequences right now and having to go repent and ask forgiveness to folks in my church. So just welcome to Risen Hope. Hope Churches doesn't have that. So this church is great. But our church is a mess. They have mess too, I'm sure. But efficiency productivity can be, can be such an enemy of resting in the Lord. Friends, if you looked at the x-ray of your life, is that clavicle missing? Is rest actually missing from your life? Let's get into some application at the end. About five years ago, I was on a personal retreat, and on Lake Marion, walking and praying, and felt like the Lord just spoke to my heart, not audibly, but just spoke to my heart like, Mike, you do not know how to rest. And the fact that I had no clue what that meant confirmed that I didn't know how to rest. If the Lord said that to you, said your name, you, 
you really don't know what it means to rest. Would that click? Like, no, no, I have a regular rhythm. I know what that means in my life. Or is it like, yeah, hmm, I have no idea. Friends, there's a journey that the Lord has us on. And let me just give you some application to this where God has been teaching me. One is this, prioritize rest. I'm not talking about unproductive or lazy moments. I'm talking about true rest, biblical rest, actually having your soul rejuvenated, Sabbathing, enjoying life. Rest may be getting with good friends and conversing. Rest may be sleeping in a bit more. Rest may be taking a walk or a hike or a job. Rest may be reading or watching something or listening to something that encourages your soul. Rest is being satisfied in God. Slowing down, understanding that he's the provider, he's the sustainer, he's the sovereign one, and you're not. And you're not supposed to be. And part of rest is just pulling back and realizing, I'm not God. I don't have to take control of everything. I, don't, I shouldn't try to take control of everything. Number two application is prioritizing the slow, long, simple, and hidden over the fast, immediate, complex, and famous. Our American age is one of urgency. Man, if you watch any news station for more than 15 minutes, you are, whoo, you're just like, you're going because there's the next thing, then the next thing, then the next thing, then the next thing. I was a communications major. I was talking to another guy, communications major. Part of that is you learn some stuff about videography. They change the picture in television and commercials and everything. Like every, I don't even know it's even seconds now. Is it seconds? Anybody know? But it is so fast that your eye cannot move on because they want to keep your attention like that. I mean, it, some of you guys, your favorite thing's Instagram, and you're like, I'm just going to scroll up once. And then you see that video. Oh, that was so funny. I'm going to do it again and again and again and again. And then 30 minutes later, you're like, why did I do this again? Friends, the slow can be really good. Spiritual growth is slow. Change is slow. Long conversations, simple days, hidden moments with God are the good life. And when we realize that slow can be good, we start having patience. Patience with our spouse and their spiritual growth. Patience with our children and their pace of change. Patience with people in our small groups, people in our church. Friends, how have we adopted the worldly philosophy of fast and famous and new equals good, equals best? Because that's not the pace of Jesus. There's a simplicity there. There's an anonymity there. You're not thinking about the next thing to post to get the next likes or what it thumbs up or followers or whatever the latest thing is. Like, that's, that's an American thing, and that's even now a global thing with social media. But, man, that is not biblical thinking. 
how can I be witty? How can I get more likes? How can I get more in, um, in, endorphins to be like waved over my brain so I can get gratification by my following? Do you really care about your following? Or do you care about Christ's following? Because we're disciples, not of ourselves. We're disciples of Christ. We're followers of Christ. We want people to follow Christ. Third application, know your defaults. We all have defaults, right? So in some of this, even some of the illustrations I'm saying, some of you guys are like, that's not like me at all. You're weird. That's fine. I am. But know your defaults. If you're the workaholic type, which is more my bent, is like know how to pull back. Know the accountability you need. Prioritize community to help you. Schedule rest. I know that feels weird to some of you guys. You're like, ah, that doesn't feel good at all. But some of us need to schedule rest. Give your phone a Sabbath. And some of us are kind of the opposite. So yeah, we're not tempted toward workaholism at all, but we're tempted toward laziness. And we've got to have accountability. So for us, if our temptations toward laziness, we need to have our Sabbath be a place of rejuvenation where we can be uh, serving others. We can be creative. Maybe you're an artist. And you want to use that artist to art, art, artistic ability to, to, to draw or paint or sculpt or whatever you do to, to bless that widow down the road or make that meal because you love cooking and you're going to help that single friend over there or you're going to read a book that's going to really help you grow or you're just going to walk the neighborhood and you're going to pray for people, pray for that neighbor and that neighbor, that guy washing his car and that person mowing the lawn and you're just going to pray and talk to God. It's not laziness. That's very productive and very restful. John Michael Comer, in his book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, started having a family practice of Sabbath, and he would hold pretty rigidly to Sabbath in a way that I probably wouldn't, but I love some of his practices. And one of the things they do as a family just to say, hey, let's, let's start this, let's, let's enjoy this. Realize God's rhythm, the regular rhythm, is every Saturday night, they make a huge cookie cake and then pile on ice cream and everybody grabs a spoon and they're like, Sabbath! God's gift! And I'm like, sign me up! That would be awesome! And that's how they start their celebration of rest. They put their phones in a basket for 24 hours. They spend family time. They play games together. They go and do things together as a family. And they're like, this is going to be how we, we Sabbath together. And they start it with yummy cookies. Maybe your family doesn't like cookies. Maybe you guys are all gluten-free. My wife's gluten-free. I wasn't trying to throw you guys under the bus. Like, those are all. Like, you can get my email from Rob. She just has to watch us eat the cookies. It's really sad. I'm just kidding. We don't do that. <laughs> But the point is, we've, we've got to be people who realize rest is a gift from God. I mean, when you just look up a few verses from, John, um, from Matthew chapter 12, and Jesus has arms wide open saying, come to me. All who are weary, 
Some of you guys walking in here now, you're like, ding, ding, ding. All who labor and are heavy laden, you're just feeling the burdens of the world. And Jesus says, I will give you burdens. No. He says, I will give you rest. This is a gift that Jesus is offering you, and yet it's so weird that we're like, I don't know. I don't know, God. I think I got this pretty well. And we're struggling, and we're limping along, and we're caffeinating the next few hours just to try to get through the work day or get through the school day or have some sort of concentration. And he says, this is a gift to you. This is rest. So I have one question. They'll be on the screen. And I'm going to pray. If I could change one aspect of how I rest, it would be blank. It might be for you, I would believe it's a gift from God. I would actually care. I would do this. I know somebody in here is like the cookies and ice cream. That's my application, which is awesome. But friends, we want the scriptures to be our guide. We want to live in the rhythm of a good creator who has good for us. Let's be a people who rest in Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that there is joy and rest in Christ for weary sinners, heavy laden sinners like us, that we don't have to work for favor. We have favor in Christ. We don't have to work to perform to get in good standing. We have it in Christ. And Lord, let us live from that favor and walk out the rest that you give. In Jesus' name. Amen.